There are so many things I want to say to kick off this episode. First of all, welcome to year five. We are back from our brief summer break and officially into a new year of the podcast. We've also passed the 200 episode mark, which is super exciting. Other exciting news about this episode. It's the first time my guests and I discuss a book that was technically written for adults, but is still popular among teen readers. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about this direction, because I know there are a lot of titles that fall into this category, and I would love to explore them in the future. Today, our focus is Summer Sisters, the first adult title written by our SSR queen, Judy Bloom. The book was published in 1998, and I always wanted to read it when I was a kid, so I'm glad that I finally got the chance to do it for episode 201. It was a pretty big deal for our guest, which you'll hear more about shortly. It would be hard to find a more summery book than Summer Sisters, so it's the ideal way to jump back in for July, too. Over the next hour, you'll hear us chat about the multiple perspectives used to narrate the sweeping story of Summer Sisters, along with the voice that's most notably absent. My guests and I discuss unlikely friendships, moms and mother figures, the way the grass is always greener on the other side, the empathy we have for the parents in the book, and the blurry lines along which the publishing industry chooses to categorize novels. We also talk about toxic friendships and the way Judy Bloom works her usual magic to explore edgy, sexy topics, in the case of Summer Sisters, for adults. We draw parallels between Summer Sisters and Gilmore Girls and Something Borrowed. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know I love these pop culture crossover moments. Please do be aware that there is a brief mention of suicide toward the end of the episode and listen with caution. Today's guest is Allison Rose Greenberg. Allison is a screenwriter who lives in Atlanta, but is quick to say she was born in New York City. While attending the University of Southern California, Allison took her first screenwriting class and fell head over heels. A journey from screenwriting led to marketing jobs before coming back to her first love. Allison speaks fluent rom-com, lives for 90s WB dramas, cries to Taylor Swift, and is a proud single mom to her two incredible kids and one poorly trained dog. Bad Luck Bridesmaid is her first novel, and I can personally tell you that it is a perfect summer read. Follow Allison on Instagram at allison.greenberg and on Twitter at allisongreenberg. If I do say so myself, the last few weeks on SSR's social media have been extra fun. We've had lots to celebrate as a community, and I've been working to up-level my Reels game and give away fun stuff too. If you enjoy the podcast, you should absolutely follow along at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Are you looking for online community? Do you love a good book club? You're invited to join the SSR Patreon family. I am not exaggerating when I tell you that my patrons and friends in that space are basically solely responsible for making me believe that online friendships are a real, serious thing. You can learn more about how to get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. As a patron, you get to support the podcast for a few dollars every month and enjoy exclusive rewards in return. At the $5 and $10 levels, you get membership in the SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club, which is reading the Agathas in July. It's not too late to jump in for our month-long discussion and so much other fun. This episode is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community, a project I started back in April in hopes of connecting aspiring fiction writers and sharing what I learned in my MFA program. Whether you think writing short stories could be a fun hobby or you've already written half of a novel, you're welcome in this group. I offer accountability, workshopping, prompts, writing advice, sharing challenges, and lots of writing discussion. Check it out at www.patreon.com ahkwriters and feel free to send me a DM if you have any questions. I can't wait to meet you and to read your work. Summer is a season for road trips and snoozing in the sun, with plenty of sunscreen, of course. Audiobooks make a perfect companion for all of these adventures and Libro.fm is the perfect place to find them. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. Let's be real. We all rely on Amazon for a lot of things, but since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately, no matter where you buy them, this is a great place to make the switch. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. 
SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Please don't hesitate to let me know if you find any audiobooks that you absolutely love. Okay, listeners, year five. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Allison. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. So today we are actually coming back from our one-week summer break on the podcast, and it's the perfect book to come back to from summer break. We're talking about Summer Sisters, but before we get into that, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the hilarious way in which we met online. (laughs) I'll let you tell the story because I think you found it especially hilarious. I think you tagged me in a story and you were reading Bad Luck Bridesmaid on the plane, I want to say. Oh, it, it was a post, Allison. It was not it, even. Oh, it was a, a full story. post. You were. You it were was reading a full Bad post. <laughs> you were reading Bad Luck Bridesmaid, and I was like, "Oh, and I'd love to see like where someone is in the book." So I sort of zoom in, and I'm like, "You are in a very sexy place in my book," and you had no idea because I kind of loved that about you. I was like, "Wait, I just own that you are reading this on a plane," and you know, this is, this is the page you're on. Nope. Allison thought that I was like Miss Sexy on the plane, like being like, I don't care what people see that I'm reading. No, I actually was just, I had two weddings in a six day period that week. And so I was exhausted and on a plane after the first wedding, maybe the second wedding. And I just snapped a pic because I was like, I'm enjoying this book. I'm on a plane. This is a great moment. I'm going to share it. And now this very steamy moment from your book, which we'll talk about a little later, is immortalized as a hard post on my feed. And then we started talking and laughing. And I was like, I have to have you on the podcast. And the rest is history. No, it was, I think it was my favorite post about my book. It was just epic. <laughs> wow. It was so great. I'm honored. It's kind of like a meet cute, I think, on, on the internet, maybe. Yeah, a sexy meet cute. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it that. So today is also kind of a milestone in that we're doing something a little bit different with the book choice. In that, for the first time ever, we're talking about a book that wasn't actually written for kids or teens. And it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, knowing that like we're not running out of books that are officially YA or middle grade. But like I also know that there are a lot of books out there that many teens found their way to before they were maybe like technically supposed to. And I want to create a space to talk about those because I think that will be really fun. So when you suggested Summer Sisters, I was like, sure, why not? We'll give it a try. And so, yeah, we're talking about Judy Bloom's Summer Sisters. I happen to already know that a lot of our listeners also read this book when they were teens. And Allison, I understand that you have quite a history with it. So I will throw it to you to talk a little bit about why this was your pick. So I, when I think of like nostalgia and childhood and the book that, I don't know, a book that turned me upside down, it was definitely stealing Summer Sisters off my mother's shelf, which I feel like all, like so many of my girlfriends did. It wasn't a book that you were kind of, that you bought for yourself at the store and, you know, you saw Judy Bloom's name on there and went, oh, okay. (laughs) And this is so steamy and so sexy and it's adult YA, or as you would call it if you were pitching the show, it'd be sophisticated YA, meaning it is about teenagers, but not for teenagers. But in in so many ways, it's a phenomenal book for teenage girls, actually. I mean, the stuff that went over my head now obviously doesn't, but I still think there's there's a ton of character study and lessons and celebrating complicated female friendships in a way that I had never read before as a, as a teen or a kid. Yeah, and I want to get into all of that in this conversation. I had never read Summer Sisters. I always wanted to. I'm pretty sure Summer Sisters was on the bookshelf of every single like beach house that my family rented throughout my entire childhood. <laughs> and I remember seeing Judy Bloom's name and of course being a really enthusiastic kid reader. I was like, oh my God, Judy Bloom, I love her so much. And then I picked it up and I was like, oh, this is for grown-ups. 
And then by the time I got to be a teenager, when I probably would have gone ahead and read it because I was reading adult books at the time, I was, of course, packing like 10 books for myself for a family beach trip. So I just like didn't need it. But I've always thought of this as a book that I would get around to reading at some point, not only because I love Judy Bloom and I do have like this weird soft spot in my heart for it just because it's like kind of been floating at the edge of all of my family vacation memories, but because I have sisters and I thought that it was about like biological sisters, which of course you find out that it's not, but I'd always wanted to read it. And so I was so glad that you made the suggestion and I think we're going to have a lot to say today. The book was written in 1998 for a little bit of context. Of course, Judy Bloom is known for her books for kids, but she did start writing for adults. She's written a few other books for grownups, if you will, since Summer Sisters. But I think people were pretty surprised to see that she started writing for anyone outside of the kid audience. Out of curiosity, Allison, did you read Judy Bloom when you were a kid too? Like kid books? Oh, yeah. So she was like that author, you know, and you see her name on your mom's shelf. You go, oh, another one for me. And then you pick right. it up and you go, oh, this, this feels a little, I shouldn't be reading this, which means I have to read this. Did you have a particular favorite of her other books when you were younger? Forever. Mm. Yeah, Forever is a good one, especially with Summer Sisters. Yeah, it's like the soft lead-in. It's like a, it actually, Summer Sisters makes Forever look like, like, you know, really peachy. Oh, for sure. And I had never read Forever until I started the podcast either. And so I've just discovered a whole other side of our girl, Judy Bloom, through this experience. But let's get into the book. So it starts in 1990 and then it jumps back to 1978. This is like a real sweeping novel. Like you said, it's a character study of primarily these two best friends, Vicks, and Caitlin, but of course we hear from a bunch of the other characters in the book throughout. What were your first impressions of Vix and Caitlin getting back into this story as an adult? It's so interesting because I looked at it and started to realize, wow, we don't have any of Caitlin's point of view in this book, which to me I, it was so interesting. And I never really thought about it reading it the first time and rereading it. I was like, this, we don't have her point of view for a reason. Like she's mysterious and she's a really rough character you know she is selfish in all these ways and broken and i think my heart went out to vix even more reading it this time around and my heart went out to caitlin too i mean this is a book this is a book fundamentally also just about the choices that mothers make and how it affects their children i thought this was a book about friendship the first time i read it rereading it as an adult i'm like oh my god these mothers in this book and what they've done to these kids and what these kids will maybe do to their kids so it, for me, I, I had a, my heart goes out to both of them, but I, Caitlin was, she's hard to love, but I think that's what makes it so compelling to read. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the mother aspect because I happen to know from your Instagram that you are a mother and you have two children, one of whom is at camp right now, which I'm sure is very difficult. <laughs> and I am anxious to hear kind of, as you go through this conversation, more of your thoughts about the mothers, because there are several mothers and mother figures in this book, and they each play a different role in Vix and Caitlin's lives. So the first moments that we get with these girls um, in 1990, before we flash back, are, are through a phone call. Uh, Vix has received a phone call from her friend Caitlin, who shares with her that she's getting married and Vix needs to come back to Martha's Vineyard to be part of the wedding. And the big bombshell, although we don't know why it's a bombshell at this early stage, is that the groom is Brew. And listeners who watch The Circle and have watched the most recent season of The Circle, there is a contestant named Brew, spelled the same way, B-R-U. And I finished watching The Circle like the night before I started reading Summer Sisters. So that was kind of weird because it's not a name that you hear or see very often. Yeah. But Brew is the groom that Caitlin is marrying. And it's a pretty quick transition from that moment of Vix receiving the news of who Caitlin is marrying before we go back to 1978 when these two girls meet in sixth grade. Vix is so relatable to me and I think she is relatable to the vast majority of readers in some way. She is at the beginning of her middle school career, which is like such a hard time. Her family is in a really difficult spot. She has three younger siblings, one of whom is in a wheelchair. That's her brother, Nathan. Her mom is really tough, Tawny. We don't quite know why she's so tough. Like it doesn't really make sense. And then her dad, Ed, just like goes with the flow. Like he's such a dad. And then this magical girl named Caitlin, who's new to the school, they live in New Mexico, just kind of like sidles up to her and wants to be her friend. And even as a 31-year-old woman, I can like put myself back in that space of being in sixth grade, being the new kid. And I was a new kid in sixth grade and I was having a very hard time. 
if like the right girl had come up to me and just kind of immediately accepted me as her friend, that would have changed everything for me. I think like I have goosebumps as you're saying that, but a hundred percent as well. I moved in fifth grade and I think having a Caitlin and somebody who's just so confident, you know, Caitlin, as she presents herself has just oozes confidence, which Vix is such a wallflower and really doesn't have when we meet her. Well, when we meet the younger Vix. And I think it's really interesting, you know, when you have somebody who is that self-confident standing next to you and pulling you into her world, all the opportunities that are presented to you are stuff you never thought you'd get and people in places you never thought you'd see. And I think it's it's a really interesting dynamic between those two. And not only does Caitlin like introduce herself and decide that they should be friends, but she invites Vix to spend the summer with her on the other side of the country, which at first I like had had trouble believing because kids are are nice, but they're not that nice. And sometimes they're actually kind of mean, but there's not an ounce of meanness as far as we can see in Caitlin early on. She's just like, yeah, like come hang out with my family in Martha's Vineyard for the summer. Did you have any trouble believing that or did it track with you right away? I think the fact that I didn't believe it made me lean in more because I was like, there ha- what's her motivation, right? You look at character motivation, like what's Caitlin's motivation here? Like why would you sidle up to a wallflower and want that want to be with them the whole summer if you're really outgoing, kind of confident extrovert? And I think part of the book is peeling back the layers to see why kind of Caitlin chose Vix, which is interesting. Yeah, and I'm it's escaping me now because in full transparency, listeners, we rescheduled our recording. So it's it's been a little bit longer than usual since I finished this book. But if I'm remembering correctly, Caitlin explains to Vix later on that she wanted to spend the summer with her sort of because like Vix is no nonsense and like isn't trying so hard. I, th- I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was like she realized that Vix sees things clearly um, and isn't trying to be somebody she's not. Is that right? I think it's like, I think she kept saying like Vix gets it, whatever yeah. it is. And the book doesn't explicitly say what it is, but I think it is, as you said, sort of this authenticity, if you will. I mean, Vix's life is what it is. She doesn't hide behind lies or behind makeup or this or that. Like she's just authentically who she is. And I think that's probably what Caitlin envies about her and loves about her at the same time. Because Caitlin's not very, actually, when you peel back her layers, is actually not very comfortable in her life and in her body and in her, you know, mm-hmm. what she just appears to be. And Vic says, it's not that she's comfortable in those spaces, but she is who she is. Yeah. And I wonder if at Caitlin's old schools, because we don't really learn that much about what her life was like before she meets Vix. I wonder if she felt like people, once they learned about her and like where she came from, if they weren't real with her. Like she seems like the kind of kid who could easily attract groups of other students who were like trying so hard to be cool so they could fit in with her. And I don't think that Vix was really doing that because she had no expectation that Caitlin would ever pick her. And and Caitlin also like when they get to Martha's Vineyards, Caitlin's like, she's dirty. She like doesn't wash her underwear. She's like, doesn't, you know, like she goes around barefoot everywhere. This, I think, you know, and any other cool girl who she'd picked would have probably called their parents to come get them immediately in this sand infested house that Lamb has, you know, this, this is when we slowly peel back that Lamb has money, but it's you couldn't tell, right, in this in this house, in this situation. So I think Vix is also chosen because she's probably, she's never seen the ocean. She's never experienced life. I think Caitlin wants to be with somebody who, or Caitlin can like, Caitlin's world is interesting to them and not scary to them. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. To your point about Caitlin being dirty, I found one piece on Bustle, and I'll link it in the show notes, listeners, that's like 14 things that you probably missed about Summer Sisters when you read it the first time. And one of the items on the list was Caitlin is dirty. And then it goes on to say like, and not sexually, like she's just actually <laughs> dirty. Like she's literally she's dirty. dirty. It's so gross. But I just blew past it the first time I read it. And then reading it as an adult, I'm like, what? Like, why? It's why? so gross. Such an interesting detail. I also, I just realized, and I have to note for listeners that It's very appropriate because Allison is sitting in front of a canvas with the ocean on it. So it fits in really nicely with our whole vibe. I'm in, I'm in Miami right now. And that's my mom actually painted that. It's a picture of my two kids on the beach or an oil painting of them on the beach. But it was so interesting. You know, I skimmed the book again because I'd read it again for us last week and skimmed it again today, like by the beach, which felt 
very necessary. <laughs> very necessary. Meant to be. Yes. Yeah, that's where you should be when you're reading this book. 100%. Before we move on to their antics in Martha's Vineyard, I do want to pause and chat about the moms for a second because we do meet Tawny and Phoebe early on in the book. Tawny, again, is Vix's mom and Phoebe is Caitlin's mom. What are your thoughts, Allison? Because I know you mentioned you had a new perspective on the role of these mothers having read this book again as an adult and as a mom yourself. Let's start with Tawny. Uh, what did you think about her this time around? I think at first you sort of sympathize with Tawny um, as a parent. You know, she's got kiddos muscular dystrophy. She's got, and she has they have four total, I'd say. Yeah. There's four and her husband's really quiet and I don't think pays much attention to her. And she's very overbearing and a worrier, but maybe who wouldn't be when your kids is in a wheelchair. She's not a likable character, but I think I had sympathy for her. And I never, in the first time I read the book, I, Phoebe, I never had sympathy for. I always, because we're in Vix's point of view and Vix so bluntly puts it that like, you know, Phoebe only wants to be a mother 10 months of the year and loves having her summers off. I could never I didn't understand that. And I, I just think it's the mothers are really problematic in this book. And, and and they, I mean, Judy Bloom doesn't skirt it, but they are like looking at it, both of them now, I'm like, they're polar opposites of each other in so many ways. One is really hard on her kid and controlling and not a happy person. The other one is this just hippy dippy, don't even put your seatbelt on when you get in my open Jeep. I'm going to go off to Paris for the summer while you go be with your dad. And kind of mom. So it is just polar opposites. What did you think when you were introduced to them? I struggled with Phoebe a little bit because we didn't get much of her. She kind of just appeared in these flashes of fabulousness. So I, I feel like I didn't get as great of a handle on her. I would probably have to read it again just because she is kind of an absent figure for the most part, which is the point. Tawny, I thought was fascinating because reading about Tawny's perspective, because we do get a few sections that are actually told through her point of view. And it's pretty easy to like understand where she's coming from, even when Vix is narrating. I guess it gave me like more empathy for my own parents at times. When I was a kid, I think I was quick to sort of like be taken in by kids who shared certain qualities with Caitlin. Um, I was never like invited to spend the summer on Martha's Vineyard, obviously, <laughs> but I think I think no matter what your circumstances are as a kid, you always think the grass is greener on the other side. And that's a huge theme in this book. Like Caitlin wants what Vix has, Vix wants what Caitlin has. And so I think even if you're a kid who has like massive privilege and comes from money, there's going to be another family that like gives you something that your own parents can't give you. And I remember there being times when I was growing up when like I couldn't understand why my parents were resistant to me spending time with a certain kid or wanting to share experiences with a friend's parents. And it just felt like they were resentful of that. And I didn't get it. And I remember arguing with them about that. Like, why can't I do this? Like, why are you so upset that like they invited me to go on this trip or to like go out to this nice dinner? And reading Tawny's perspective is just a great reminder that like, and I, I don't have kids, but that would be hard. Like whether it's financial privilege or family stability or anything else that you can't necessarily give your kids in your own home to be reminded of that by your actual child being like, no, I'm going to go get this thing that you can't give me elsewhere. That must be really painful. And as she gets older, the relationship she has with Kaylin's parents and, and Lamb's uh, girlfriend, Abby, and then wife, Abby, like the relationship she has with them becomes very much you know, like the parents she doesn't have, right? They are like, they're the ones who want to pay for college for her and want her to have a good life and treat her like a daughter. And I can understand, as you said, like from her mother's, from Tawny's point of view, how hard that is that these other people can give her daughter things that she can't and that her daughter chooses to be with them over her own family as well. You know, that's, that stings. Yeah. And we find out later on that it seems like Tawny was not always like this. Like Tawny kind of comes alive when she comes to Martha's Vineyard for a work trip with the woman she works for who is known as the Countess and is, of course, like an old family friend of Lamb's. Vic sees her in a different way. And we, I think, as readers start to wonder, like, when did Tawny kind of get beaten down by the world? Um, and when did her outlook on things start to change? And then we're reminded of the fact that, again, she has four children. She has a husband who, while sort of 
baseline providing for the family is not particularly engaged with what they're doing. She has a son who's very sick and it just seems like her life is in chaos and she's trying to hold it all together. At some point like that is going to cause you stress and strain. And so that's bound to like change the way you approach things. So even again, like getting into my own adulthood, I'm like, I think that everything that you encounter throughout your life can harden you a little bit. And that's what happened to Tawny. So combining the fact that like she's seeing Vic's taking on a persona that maybe she wished that she'd had, getting opportunities that she wished she'd had would be very hard, especially on top of the fact that like she's constantly being reminded that she can't give her daughter these things that she wants. I think there's there's a moment specifically where Vix's younger sister, Lainey, like says to her, she hates you because you're getting everything that she wants. Like we all hate you for that. So it's laid out pretty clearly. Yeah, the, they, they don't mince words. And I think looking at Phoebe and Tawny looking at Phoebe, like that's somebody who has gets to live the exact opposite life while being a mother. And I think for her, that is probably a fantasy. As much as she says all these, that woman's barely a mother, the, the little dig she says about Phoebe, I think for her, it's like, that would be her fantasy. And then later on, as we'll talk about later, like she kind of does that. She just sees this communication with her family and goes and does her own thing, which is so, which is so interesting from like the woman we meet up top who's super overbearing and yeah, mom 24-7, and then she disappears. I feel like maybe there's like a Tawny and a Phoebe inside of every mom to some degree, or maybe inside of every parent. Like it's a lot of responsibility to have children, and you probably want to live that fantasy and also like sort of hunker down into the world that you've built, and that it must be hard to deal with both of those things at the same time. Yeah, I mean, my kids are off at summer camp now. They they overlap only for five days. My daughter's really little, so hers is just a five day experience. But my son's there for four weeks, and you know that is there's like a a feeling of freedom when you know your kids are taken care of, right? And you know that they're going to be okay, and and they're in their happy place, and you get to you know feel like what it's like to have a little bit of freedom. And I think that's important. And Phoebe's is just like to an extreme, right? And Tawny's to the other extreme of wanting to sort of hold on to everyone. And, which is interesting. And I think something that I am reflecting on more as we're talking is like so much of this book is about is about finding moderation because we have a lot of extreme characters. Like we have Tanya and Phoebe who are extreme opposites as mothers. We have Caitlin and Vix who are very different. Like there's a lot of sort of polarity in the characters in this book. And I wonder if something that Judy Bloom was thinking about was like, where do we find kind of the happy medium in a lot of these ways? so that everything doesn't have to feel like so extreme and dramatic all the time. Yeah, and what's Abby's her name, right? Who's Lamb's yeah. wife. Like she sort of is that mother figure that is, although she, it's different because she can't actually mother those two girls, but she she wants to be in the middle, right? She, she wants them to be okay, but she's not overbearing. And she's kind of that, I feel like Judy Boone presents her as actually like a perfect mother figure in a way, like somebody that Vix can go to and talk to and somebody who cares about her and cares about her and like a outside of herself in a selfless way. Yeah, I loved Abby, but then I felt I felt sort of guilty loving Abby because I knew that Abby was taking Vix away from Tawny. And it just I was very confused about my feelings for her. But the girls make it to Martha's Vineyard for their first summer. And Vix like is just sort of exposed to a whole new life, a whole new way of being. She meets Lamb, Caitlin's dad. She meets Sharky, Caitlin's brother. Something else that was noted in the Bustle article is like, we didn't realize that all these names were so funky. And like so Judy weird. Bloom's, yeah, so weird. Like Judy Bloom used such classic names in all of her other books. And it's like, she got to this book and was like, I'm done with that. I'm only using the funky <laughs> nicknames. So funny. So they get to Martha's Vineyard. I'm sure listeners can imagine kind of like the things that Vix is exposed to because she is in a new place of privilege. She's seeing new things. But I want to call out one thing in particular because it's very relevant to content that Judy Bluma has talked about or has written about in other books of hers. And we've, we've brought it up on the podcast. So I'll just read one line from this first summer. Vixen and Cassandra, summer sisters, the two sexiest girls on the vineyard, maybe anywhere. They had the power. The power was inside their pants between their legs. They just discovered that if they rubbed it in a certain way, it was like an electrical current buzzing through them. So Judy Bloom is, of course, well known for writing about sex, for writing about masturbation. There's Dini, which is kind of known as like the masturbation book. We've, we've covered that on the podcast. 
There is Forever, which we referenced earlier, Allison. That's like the sex book. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Also introduces some conversations about sex um, and just kind of like getting comfortable and aware of your body. Allison, like, do you remember how it felt to read these kinds of moments when you were a teenager? I think the power, I think anyone who read this as a teenager will say that like that power, the Summer Sisters power, and that's like the most memorable part of the book. There are so many memorable parts, but when you're younger and you read it, you're like, oh, oh, you know, and you can draw from own experiences or what you will. And it's so interesting that Judy makes it less about sex and more about, as she said, power or more about your own sexuality and your owning kind of what you can do for yourself too, which is very interesting. And also having a friendship that stays completely non-sexual, but has these moments of two women kind of using each or girls using each other to kind of get off in a way, um, which is, but Judy makes it, I don't, she makes it empowering and makes it, and is very honest about it. And I think it's a really ballsy, it's a ballsy chapter. It's a ballsy thing to talk about and write about. You know, I, I could imagine her like melting into her chair as she was writing it, which I love. Yeah, especially because like it has this, it has this like painterly cover. There's two sort of relaxed beach chairs with the straw hats. And it's like, yeah, it's Judy Bloom, but it's like a grown up Judy Bloom. She's not going to talk about sex. And then, like you said, it's this very ballsy chapter. I think that's a great way to describe it. I liked that it was something that these girls kind of figured out together. Like they were having a dialogue about it. I thought it was sort of, I don't know if funny is the right word, but like they had these very frank conversations about like, okay, so like this is what the power is. Like right now, this is how we're using it. We're going to use it together. And then as they got older, it was like, okay, we're only using the power with other people. Like we're not going to use the power in front of each other anymore. That part of our relationship is over. So they had kind of like blurred the lines at the beginning. And I just like that they had this open conversation about it because that's just not something that kids are encouraged to do, certainly not in 1998. No, and I think also when they were like, you know, we're going to put this to bed, we're going to bury it. I think they had some ceremony for the power to say goodbye to it. But it's, yeah, it's not something I ever read about, especially I guess I was 14, 15, whenever I picked up the book, I didn't think that I had read about that and had it put in a way that felt YA actually. I think that Fix's point of view is really beautifully done YA. And so I think, you know, this is an adult book, but when you read it, it's childlike in a way when she's talking about giving yourself an orgasm, right? It's the power. It's this, And it feels so natural to read about from like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old's point of view, however whatever their ages are when they discover that. I think it was really well done. Speaking to sort of the category of this book or where it sits on the shelf, a few of the reviews that I read talk about how especially knowing that Judy Bloom is this like beloved teen author for the first, like, I don't know, half or two thirds of this book, it doesn't really feel like an adult book. Like we know from the, that moment where we're in 1990 with the phone call that eventually we're going to find these girls as grown up women who are getting married and reconnecting after all these years. We're not quite sure how we're going to get there, but for the majority of the book, really they're like 18 and younger. And so it does kind of feel it feels young. And it made me wonder, like, I do think that over time, the way that books are categorized has become so much more siloed from my time working in publishing and just like being in conversation with so many authors and, and people in the book world over the last couple of years. I think it's harder to sell a book. I mean, if you're Judy Bloom, it's not hard to sell a book. But like in general, I think it's harder to sell a book when the lines are blurred this way. This doesn't really fit neatly into any category. But in 1998, YA wasn't really a thing yet, which is the other reason I want to explore some kind of like, quote, adult books on the podcast. And I just think it would it would be harder maybe to get away with something like this now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could see it, an editor saying, pick, you know, pick a genre, you know, or it's so funny because the my second book has not a, has a YA component as in it has flashbacks in the book that are young, that are under 18. And we even talked about, you know, putting a hint of that on the cover. She's like, no, we can't confuse people because this is clear. This is an adult book. So I think it is it is so interesting that this chose its lane, but very clearly has just such a YA vibe. It's very adult, but it has such a YA vibe. It's very, and it's nostalgic reading it now too. I still feel I can like picture my 15-year-old self reading this and that feels okay. There's no part of me that reading this book again now thought like I shouldn't have been reading that. 
or that a 13 year old shouldn't read that. I think, I think it's okay. There's some cautionary tale stuff in this too. That's, you know, that's probably pretty okay for, for girls that age to read. I agree with you completely. I just think like maybe Judy Bloom could sell the same book now because she's Judy Bloom, but 1998 was a different time. No one else could. No, a hundred percent. They would, they would say like, take away the sexy sex scenes, take away X, Y, Z. And, and then you'd have summer sisters, this YA book. Yeah, totally. So another major turning point for these girls is when they meet Vaughn and Brew. And Brew becomes Vix's crush while Caitlin is more drawn to Vaughn. And this is a long book. So we're not going to be able to cover like all of the moments that they share over these summers they spend together. We're not going to be able to dive into the full progression of their relationships with these boys. But suffice it to say that Caitlin strikes up a relationship with Vaughn and Vix with Brew, which is a huge deal. She's never really like dated anybody before. And of course, this is like the guy that she's been crushing on for a few summers now. And then the thing at the beach happens, the birthday party happens. And the best way that I can explain it, and then I I have a little sort of back and forth dialogue that I want to read that I really think breaks down what happens, is that they're all like having a great time. Caitlin plans this big birthday for Vix. And they get stoned. And I think for Vix, it's her first time getting stoned. Like I don't think she's ever been high before. And that in itself was a big thing. And... While she is stoned or high, like, I don't know, what are, what are the kids saying these days? Whatever. While after she has been <laughs> she's super smoking high. <laughs> weed, she's super high and she makes out with Vaughn. And it's like, oh, like, LOL, you know, we were going crazy on my birthday. No big deal. And then she, she finds out later on that Caitlin and Brew were also involved. And she confronts Caitlin. She says, you planned it, didn't you? And Caitlin says, don't be ridiculous. It was supposed to be the best damn birthday you've ever had. So maybe it got a little out of control. I'm sorry. Is that what you want me to say? And Vic says, was Brew in on it? Just tell me, was he part of your plan or was it just you and Vaughn? And Caitlin says, you're paranoid if that's what you think. Nobody planned anything. It just happened. And this is where like, as readers who have art, you know, we read this scene at the beginning where we find out that Caitlin and Brew are getting married and like all begins to make sense. And and I think, you know, when she's kissing Vaughn and you don't know that she's kissing Vaughn and she pulls back and it's Vaughn in front of her, she spirals. I mean, and that's also, I can't remember if that's the night she thinks she's going to sleep with Brew. I think she's thinking in her head she's going to lose her virginity to Brew, maybe not that night, but I, I think so. So there's like so much sort of pent up XYZ in her head about this relationship that's on the brink of becoming something even more. And it's the first time also that we, not the first time, but it's a, it's a big turning point in Vix and Caitlin's relationship. It's the first time I think that Vix sees that Caitlin has selfish tendencies that might end up destroying her life, you know, and they, their like friendship just dissolves from there. It doesn't, it comes back, but never the same, never the same after that. It's never the same. And I think like around this time, Caitlin tries to play this game of like, oh, I'm worried of like, I'm trying to protect you in this relationship with Brew because prior to Brew and Vix getting together, the girls had witnessed this like really kind of dramatic, embarrassing breakup scene between Brew and another girl in town while they were at a pizza shop or something. And so Caitlin like keeps coming back to that and is like, I mean, I'm happy you're happy, but I just want to protect you. And as an adult who's been through like all kinds of ups and downs with friendships, it feels I'm like, okay, like this is a this is something that I've seen before. If not in my life, like I've I've coached friends through this same kind of thing where somebody where another friend is like trying too hard to impose like their opinions or their advice on somebody else. And I think this is where we start to get into like the toxic friend zone. And I know that like the word toxic is potentially overused these days, but because it is so out there, I wanted to bring it up. Allison, to what extent do you think we're seeing a toxic friendship? And when do you think that starts between Caitlin and Vix? I think the moment that Vix has something that Caitlin doesn't have, which is brew, yeah. I think that we see a different side to Caitlin. And I, I think that she is I mean, when you finish the book, you do have empathy for her, but she's from all you know, she's very toxic. And I, I mean, I think also like there's I think a lot of Caitlin is wrapped up when she meets that movie star and she's their nanny, yeah, um, the babysitter. And 
her mindset versus Vix's mindset there, I think we see we see a lot about who Caitlin is, that she loves attention, loves it even if it's dangerous and toxic and harmful um, and illegal. She loves it. So I think it's not like at that moment I was like, I think this girl might do anything for attention, but I, it was in the back of my head. Yeah, she's nannying for this family one summer, or I guess they together are nannying or babysitting for a family. And the father is famous and like hot and powerful. And he's into Caitlin and Caitlin is not not into it. Like she really is interested in the fact that like he wants to spend time alone with her so much so that Vic's like actually has to kind of make a statement. He has them alone in a car and Vix is like, no, we're getting out of this car. Like Vix is looking out for Caitlin in a way that does feel more authentic than the way that Caitlin is looking out for Vix, which I think is is pretty telling. So in addition to this whole incident at the beach party that pulls them apart, they start to just kind of follow different paths. Caitlin's whole motto in life is NBO, never be ordinary. They make a pact to never be ordinary. And she starts to point out instances where she feels as though Vix is being ordinary. She wants to do all this travel and like she's just willing to kind of like go off at the drop of a hat, especially for like summer vacations. And Vix just doesn't have that luxury. She has a lot of responsibilities. Her brother Nathan ends up passing away, I believe right before their senior year of high school, which only further disrupts their friendship. Caitlin is really supportive of her right after it happens. She like goes home with Vix and supports her while they're going through the funeral and the days immediately following Nathan's passing. But after that, she just kind of like doesn't get the fact that when you lose somebody that close to you, it doesn't just like get better right away. Like Vix now has to pick up the pieces in a lot of ways that Caitlin isn't used to dealing with. And so it just keeps driving them further apart. And their post-graduation plans are really different. Caitlin is accepted to Wellesley, but she doesn't go. Uh, She wants to go travel and Vix gets into Harvard and she's being supported by the foundation that Lamb and Abby run. So she's like ready to go to Harvard and to pursue what to Caitlin seems like an ordinary kind of conventional life. But do you think in reading it and finishing it in full, and this, you know, this is a big spoiler at the end of the book, but knowing what happens when Nathan dies that, you know, that Caitlin goes to tell Brew and they sleep together and Caitlin loses her virginity to Brew knowing that and then Caitlin vows to never go back to Martha's Vineyard because she doesn't want to ruin Vix's life. Do you think that they go off in different spaces because they would always have? Or do you think that also was like Caitlin realized that was crossing a line that she should have never crossed? It's so interesting because I, I, when I finished the book, I was like, there's a part of me that wants to believe that when Caitlin crossed that line, that's why she didn't come back to Martha's Vineyard. But there's another side that's just like, it was just another casualty on the, on the road of, of Caitlin. Yeah. I mean, I do. I like to think that Caitlin has has more of like a conscience and like a moral compass and that she like realized that what she did was wrong. And so she's trying to distance herself. Obviously, if she had like a really strong moral compass, she would have told Vix about what happened. And if she had a really, really strong moral compass, she would not have done what she did in sleeping with Brew. I do think that they, it was inevitable. Like I think that the dissolution of their friendship was inevitable. I think like as much as I loved the book, in so many ways, I was thinking about like, are there actually friendships like this? Like, is this a real thing? It's such an example of like, opposites attract, even in friendship. And I just don't, it's hard for me to, to say definitively based on my own life experiences and observations that there are actually friendships out in the world between people that are this different from one another that can sustain for as long as as, as long as Vix and Caitlin even sustain that friendship in the book. Like, I think that they managed to stick together for a long time, given how different they were. So I think that the ending was probably inevitable. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And I think I think Vix actually kind of craved being ordinary. I, I think that yeah. I think she found solace in that and comfort in that, right? And that's the guy she chose. Like, the life that they have was ordinary together. And I think she saw that that was okay. And Caitlin constantly chasing something that isn't real. The route she made, she left, right? That was sort of with her daughter. And, you know, I think anything that would have tied her down to being ordinary, it's not for her. Yeah, she was going to be out no matter no matter what. And I think this is also such like an example of how friendships change over time and how like the kinds of friends you need at different times, it changes. And so when they were younger... Vix, I think, really wanted somebody who made her feel special and made her life a little bit more exciting and drew her into their different world. 
but the friends that Vix makes at Harvard are much more like her and they are protective of her in a much different way than Caitlin ever was. Like while Brew and Vix are dating during Vix's time at Harvard, her new friends, Maya and Paisley are like pretty quick to point out the questions that they have about him. And they're even quicker to point out the concerns they have about Caitlin. They're like, it's pretty obvious that she's jealous of us and of the fact that we've become more important in your life than she is. And I think like when I look back on the friendships I've had in my own life, I've needed different things from friends at different times. And so as sad as it is that I do think their relationship was bound to end pretty definitively, like I think that's the nature of friendships. And it's it sucks because so often like a friend, a friendship ends in like this dramatic friend breakup where you just like never speak to each other again. And it's sad. But I do think like with the benefit of time, you're like, oh, if I can just appreciate like those years that we spent together, it all begins to make more sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Vix still puts Caitlin on this pedestal, even towards even at the end, you know, she's like, if Caitlin, I just still fantasize about her, you know, calling me and I would drop everything and going meet her at Martha's Vineyard, meet her in Europe, whatever it is. And I think that it's still, you, there's still that person who has a hold on you, even though you know that they're not right for you, whether in romantic relationships or friendships. And I think, I think Caitlin will always have a hold on Vix. Yeah, I think that's true. So a couple of other like very important things happen for each of them uh, around their college years and, and early 20s. As I mentioned, Vix is still dating Brew throughout much of her time at Harvard. And in what actually felt like a very Rory Gilmore moment to me, I don't know how familiar you are with the Gilmore Girls, Allison. Very. But it felt very much like, like Rory telling Dean, assuming that Dean – like I guess Dean does kind of like push Rory to settle down with him. I don't think he ever proposes, but after – he and his wife break up and he and Rory sleep together and they kind of like try it again to date while she's at Yale. He kind of suggests like, oh, like we could keep doing this. And Rory realizes that their lives are going in different directions. It felt very much like that in this book. Like Brew really wants to marry Vix and she says to him, like, we want different things. I think she kind of wanted to keep dating and he was like, no, it's obvious that like this isn't going to work. And then later on, of course, we find out that in that time he had slept with Caitlin without without telling Vix, which I think he doesn't get enough heat for because as happens so often, like I think like Vix directs all of her frustration at Caitlin as she should, because that's frustrating and, and it's a betrayal of their friendship, but also like Brew was involved. And I think we see in pop culture way too often that like women in these situations take all the blame and Brew also had a part to play. Yeah. They break up. I think he sleep. He sleeps with like the vitamin shop girl, like the star, whatever yeah. her name is. And then I know, I remember he proposes yeah. to her and she can't say yes. And I think that is, maybe that's her never being ordinary, right? She's, she yeah. doesn't, I think she knows exactly what her life is going to be with Brew and she wants something more for herself, right? And he starts also to have insecurities about how, you know, is he smart enough for her? And I think it's yeah. hit that causes a big rift between them because she can't hide who she is, that she's smart or that she loves being smart or that she loves learning or that her friends are smart and she loves them too. And he wants a very simple life with her back in the vineyard. I think by the time she finds out, which is at the wedding, by the time she finds out that Caitlin and Bruce slept together, remember she sleeps with Brew the night of before the wedding. Yeah. And she finds this out, I want to say afterwards. So yeah, I think in – it doesn't make sense to confront him because I think she just realizes that they're all to blame at that, at that point, like they've all done horrible things. Yeah. And she doesn't, she's not able to look at him. She even says that she's dancing with him. She doesn't feel anything after finding that out about Caitlin, which is very interesting too. So maybe it's just not worth it. Like you want to see her to kind of tear him a new one, but she doesn't even tell him that she knows. Yeah, as I was skipping through through the book today and getting ready to chat with you, um, I found I had a note in the margin at that moment that says, like, why is she not more angry? <laughs> like, it does seem like Vic's kind of – because she does, as you said, like, she finds this out right before the wedding, I think, as Caitlin's getting dressed and, like, getting ready to walk down the aisle. And she sort of admits in that moment, like, yeah, this whole thing is kind of a sham, but it'll be a great party. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but we're going to have fun. And I was struck by how – Vix just kind of like absorbs it and goes on with her night and she doesn't have a choice, I guess. And she had moved on, but I just wanted Brew to, I wanted Brew to get some more consequences for what he did. Um, the other thing that happens, it's significant and that I want to call out because it, it was such an important thing happening in the world at the time is that Caitlin on her travels meets two men uh, who are diagnosed with AIDS. 
And we get a sneak peek kind of early in the book about Caitlin's preoccupation with death because the family dog dies, which is really sad. And then we find out that she is caring for these friends that are extremely ill while she's traveling. And that's something that I think if I'd read it as a kid, like that would have been a new narrative for me at the time. And so I think it's really great that Judy Bloom was putting stories like that in this book and showing like the love story that that Caitlin had with these friends of hers. It's important to show all kinds of love stories. And she loved them. Like she really is heartbroken when they are sick and then when they die. And you feel that through the pages. Yeah, it's there's so much sadness in this book too. I mean, Nathan's death, which is Vix's little brother dying at that young and Vix not being able to say goodbye to him and the guilt there and then Caitlin's, you know, close male friends dying of AIDS. And I think with Caitlin for her, she, you know, we see a little bit, it's not explored so much her, whether or not she's suicidal, I don't know. But as you said, like her fascination with death, I mean, she even says like, I don't, I don't want to get old. Like I want to die before I get old. And so it's, it's an interesting character trait that she has that she carries with her, which clearly pays off at the end of the book. But it's, there's a lot of sadness. And I think that's with the AIDS part, how she's, you know, telling Vix, you know, people, I want to get reporters on this. I want to shine a light on this. It is the most humane we see of Caitlin in the book. I think it's a moment where we see how she loves and that she cares. Yeah, it was like a softer side. And it was only in that moment that I was like, I wish I wish we had Caitlin's point of view because I like wanted to experience that with and through her. But other than that, I thought it was really effective that we didn't really hear her side of the story. The finale of the book is pretty dramatic and ambiguous. And we, of course, have to touch on that before we wrap up. So these women both get married. As we know, Caitlin marries Brew. They have a little girl together. And then Caitlin takes off, kind of following in Phoebe's footsteps. Vix marries Gus, who was also kind of like adjacent to this family in Martha's Vineyard. Um, and they're both like kind of living their lives, doing their own thing. And um, Vix finds out after having one last conversation with Caitlin that she's disappeared in what seems to have been a boating accident. But we never find out for sure in the epilogue what happened to Caitlin. If she actually disappeared, if she died in an accident, if she perhaps did die by suicide, if she just ran away, like we don't really know what happened. What do you think of the ending, Allison? Did you like that it was vague? What do you think happened? Like the, I think it's like her boat's just there peacefully, and she's yeah, she's not. I think I think after reading the book, I want to say the first time I read it for me, it was very clear that she was dead. Yeah, my first reading as a kid, you know, I was like, oh, she she's dead, and she drowned on purpose is sort of where my head went as a you know fifteen year old, and I think. I think I love that it's open-ended because the same reason there's no chapters that give us her point of view. She's a mystery. Like Caitlin is this very flawed, complicated mystery. And I think, I think mourning her death would be a lot for the end of that book. And so leaving it so open-ended feels just right for Caitlin. Like maybe she'll call in 20 years. Maybe she'll show up on her daughter's doorstep in five years. Like you just don't know. And I think it feels right for her. What did you think when you read it? I agree with you. I am not the kind of reader that, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, I I sort of like take what's given to me in a book. Like I don't spend a lot of time like trying to sort out the mystery. And so like you, I read this as like, we just don't know. And like, that makes sense. It's not a mystery that's meant to be solved because sometimes in life, like we just don't know how things end and where people go. And that doesn't make it any less heartbreaking. It actually makes it more heartbreaking because who knows if she'll ever come back. But I was not really trying to solve the mystery. I just felt like, like you said, this is probably what was supposed to happen with this character. It made a lot of sense. And I like the idea of her showing back up in 20 years. Maybe Judy Bloom will see fit to give us that part of the story sometime. Judy, if you're listening, we're waiting. Uh, Incidentally, I did see in 2020 that they are adapting this yes. um, into a limited series, which I can't believe it's taken this long. It's going to be great. I can't wait. I am jealous of the whole thing. Yes. Judy Bloom's like been notoriously been nearly impossible to get to adapt her stuff. She's just very hesitant to do it. So this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret is in the works right now, yes. which has been pretty public. And then Summer Sisters. So we will wait to hear more news about that. It'll be great. I think, you know, it's funny reading this. I don't know if you read Emily Giffen's um, Something Blue or Something Barred was the first one. And it's so interesting to look at, you know, I think that was another one that's like looks at very complicated female friendships of more of the wallflower and the spitfire. And I always thought of that book as being like 
a jumping off point from Summer Sisters. Yeah, I can see that. If you if if you read it again, it's pretty interesting. I was thinking about it the other day, and especially while reading rereading this, where they felt like she felt like she took the personalities of these two women and then put a guy in the middle that the one was getting married to that the other one had, you know, been in love with for a while. It's very. It felt felt very similar. Yeah, I can totally see that. That's also such a good movie. Now I want yes, to go watch that movie. So good. So good. Allison, on the whole, what was the experience of coming back to Summer Sisters like for you? Did it hold up to your memories of it or did it let you down in some way? I think it holds up completely. Like there's, you know, the age differences are sort of problematic. Like, you know, these really young girls with guys that are these illegal, you know, that are way too old for them. Um, there's certain things I didn't see the first time I read it, but I think it holds up completely because it's just a really beautiful look at complicated female friendships and we don't get that enough. So I, I think it's, and it's so nostalgic. The fact that it was kind of a period piece, right? So she wrote it and it, in so many ways, it's a period piece because you get to go back to the seventies when you're reading it in the late nineties. And now of course we're you know 2022 and you get to have this sneak peek into the world before phones and when friendships were like all you had to lean on and to entertain you. So I think, I think it really, it's just very nostalgic and holds up and really beautiful and really sad in places. I found it just to be like as sexy and all the things as it was. I was like, God, it, it is, there's, there's a lot of sadness in this book. Yeah, I loved it. I am so glad that I finally read it. I didn't read it when I was a kid, but I still felt nostalgic as if I had read it when I was a kid. Like it brought me back to a lot of other, I think books and TV shows and movies. Like it brought so many good pieces of other things that I've experienced into one package. And so I'm glad that I read it. Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed our first adventure into an adult book on the podcast. I want to do more now. So I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Allison, other than Summer Sisters, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh my goodness. I I just did Emily Henry's new book, which everyone and their mother have also done, Book Lovers. I loved it. I like hadn't read Beach Read yet, so I followed it up with that. So I Absolutely, just tore through both of those and loved them. So, and right now I'm reading Cult Classic um, by Sloane Crosley, and it's very cool, like very, very cool, like it's almost like thriller romance. Cool. I like the cover of that book. I haven't read it yet, but I just saw the cover the other day, and I was into it. So yeah. now I'll have to add it to my list. Yeah, it's awesome. As we know, listeners, I have read. Allison's book, Bad Luck Bridesmaid. Um, I read it. I enjoyed it. I posted a picture of it. I was so excited that I didn't even pay attention to what the words were on the page. So Allison, like, I'm just going to let you share a little bit about Bad Luck Bridesmaid. And I know you mentioned uh, another project that you're working on. I'm not sure how much you can say about that, but just tell listeners where they can find you and what you've been working on. Thank you. Yes. Bad Luck Bridesmaid is my first debut novel and it is really actually does explore female friendship different from this one, but it's still very important in the book. But it is about a woman, Zoe Marks, who's 31, who is kind of marriage is bad luck. Um, all her friends who get married when she's asked to be a bridesmaid in their weddings, none of them make it down the aisle. And one, two, three failed weddings for her. Her then perfect, gorgeous, wonderful boyfriend proposes to her at the heels of causing another bride to not walk down the aisle. And she's so petrified of marriage that she says no and breaks her own heart. And then her best friend, Hannah, from childhood gets engaged and has this quickie wedding in Ireland where her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, is going to be. So she basically is hell-bent on getting Hannah down the aisle so she can change her mind about marriage and be able to say yes to the perfect man. And lots of hijinks ensue as they head off to Ireland in this beautiful castle um, where she wrestles with her feelings on marriage and love and friendship. And that's Bad Luck Bridesmaid. And then I'm on revisions for my second novel, which is all I can probably say about it is that it's a love triangle with a couple different timelines. And I'm very excited about it. Well, I'm excited about it too. As I said, like loved Bad Luck Bridesmaid. Actually, it was recommended to me by Emma Gray on the show, I want to say last fall, she'd read it and she's like my friend, Alison Greenberg wrote this book. Um, and so it was her recommendation a few months ago. And then I read it as soon as like I had the opportunity. And so it's this nice little neat SSR synchronicity thing. Now we have multiple friends of the podcast linked together, <laughs> Bad Luck Bridesmaid. And yes, listeners, I recommend that you read it. It's an especially great pick for summer. So Allison, thank you for writing it. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about Summer Sisters. I had so much fun. Thank you for having me and thank you for giving me a chance to reread this. I, I love this book. Yes, I do too now. So thank you for, uh, for bringing me into that Summer Sisters loving club. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.